So open up your scriptures to Luke chapter 18 if you are not quite there yet. As human beings, we all have a very serious problem, don't we? A problem that needs to be solved, a problem that if left unaddressed is going to continue to plague the world around us, a problem that is crippling humanity even as we speak, a a problem that's robbing us of joy and eventually is going to doom us to destruction if it is not taken care of. That problem is not taxes. That problem is not global warming. That critical issue that addresses us all is not unemployment or traffic or cancer or President Donald Trump. That problem is something greater than all of those things. It's sin. It's sin. The very heart of man that is so dark and that desires to do what God has called us not to do. That desires to overlook the good things that God has created us to accomplish. This sin is serious. Because God is holy. God is pure. And God is perfect. And when we practice sinfulness, when we allow our hearts to dwell on things and desire things that are worthless and that are in fact wicked, then we are as a defiled people not able to be in the presence of a perfect and sinless God. Our sin pushes us away from this divine being who has created us. But this problem of sin is not always obvious, is it? Today we're going to read about a man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus too is a sinner like us. But Bartimaeus has another problem. It's one that is more apparently obvious to the people around him. Though you and I have learned how to hide our sin. Though you and I, like just about every human being, knows how to ignore their sin and has acted in such a way that our sins are not blatantly obvious to others around us at all times, this problem of blindness that Bartimaeus is struggling with has made an undeniable impact on his existence. It is clear to others that he is blind. It is affecting almost every aspect of his life. Blindness was a very serious limitation in a society that wasn't set up to care for the needs of the disabled and the poor and the downtrodden. In fact, in the Hebrew culture, we've already seen evidence in Scripture, you might remember from chapter 9 of John, that many viewed people who had serious disabilities like blindness as possibly God's condemnation on them. Who sinned that this man might be born blind? Was it he or his parents? The assumption was that because he is blind, he must deserve it. And so many of the disabled in the culture, many of those who struggle with things like blindness, were often not only overlooked, but they were often disdained as people who must be guilty of something terrible if God would allow that to happen to them. And so this man, Bartimaeus, has a sin problem, but he also has a physical problem, a problem that is a serious limitation to him. And today, this morning, as we open the Scripture together, we get to watch Jesus miraculously solve this man's immediate, pressing, physical problem. But he doesn't stop at that. That's not all that Jesus cares about. So let's begin by reading this passage in Luke chapter 18. We're going to be studying verses 35 through 43 today. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting beside the road begging. 
and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Will you bow your heads with me for a moment as we ask the Lord to let this text do what He intends to do with it in our lives. God, we praise You for the Word which is infinite, which is always true, which is reliable. God, we try to take that Word now and apply it to hearts and lives that are not always true, God. Make this eternal truth affect us in such a way that it might scare off some of the wickedness in us, Lord. I pray that You would help us to become more sanctified each time we read this Word. Please humble us today. Let us not think of Your Scripture as always applying to some other wicked person we know, Lord God, but let us turn it upon our own hearts that you might reveal in us what needs to change so that you can be greater glorified in our lives. Let our lives be a testimony to your kingdom, to your reign. We love you, and we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On this final stretch of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, he and his disciples make their way westward, through the city of Jericho. And Jericho is not an unfamiliar name to us. We recognize the name of this city because it plays such a prominent role in the Old Testament, particularly in the story of God redeeming Israel and bringing them out of the slavery that they for generations had endured under the yoke of the empire of Egypt. Jericho was the first city that the Israelites were able to enter into and conquer as God made the beginning of the conquest of the promised land a reality for them. Last week we spoke about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament and how God's intention to redeem man through His Son Jesus Christ is evident throughout the Old Testament. The narrative of Israel being freed from sin and then taking the possession of the promised land foreshadows the incredible redemption that comes through Jesus Christ who sets us free from our slave master, from sin, and makes us fit for the kingdom where we can endure with Him forever. So think about the parallels that we see in Old Testament texts and how they come to life and are fulfilled in the New Testament promises that Jesus brings and makes perfect. So I think it's interesting that here as... Jesus makes his last approach up to the city of Jerusalem. He goes through that Jericho. So many who will trust in him will experience a new freedom, a new belonging that they've never experienced before. And so here this last section, this third section of, of Luke begins in this small town, or this major city rather. We meet blind Bartimaeus in this passage of Scripture and we find him in a logical place. He's begging for alms on the side of the road that leads into the city. 
This story appears in Matthew and Mark as well with some small details unique to each of the accounts. And so I might mention some things from those passages of Scripture. I listed them at the top of your notes if you want this week to go back and compare the stories and read them in your quiet times and your times of devotion on your own. Now some have made a big fuss about the fact that Mark says this story happens when Jesus is leaving Jericho, whereas this accountant Luke tells us that it happens as Jesus is entering into Jericho. Is this a contradiction? Is this a discrepancy in the biblical record? I don't believe it is at all. In fact, if you were to be able to walk that same road that heads westward towards, towards Jerusalem, you would come upon two Jerichos. The first city you would encounter would be in ruins. It would be the leftovers of the very Jericho that was destroyed when Israel and their priests marched seven times around that great city and then blew trumpets and the might of God caused the walls of Jericho to fall to the ground and crumble outward. That ruins was still there. But they had rebuilt Jericho to make a brand new city. The empire had poured tons of resources into making Jericho a beautiful and important hub of commerce. And so there was, westward, a new Jericho that was brimming with activity, that was full of life and, and commerce and prosperity. And so it makes perfect sense that perhaps they were leaving the old Jericho, passing the ruins of Jericho, as they entered into the new Jericho, so they could both be coming and going into Jericho at the same time. The lack of social welfare in that day meant that a disabled person had to rely on primarily their family to take care of them. If someone lost their sight or was injured or became sick, whatever family cared for them would pull them into their households and provide food and provide shelter. But in the absence of family, or if one had family that had rejected them and refused to help, then there were not very many options for someone like this man, Bartimaeus. And so he did what he could do. He went to a place where many people would be coming and going, and he would simply sit there in his pitiful state with an arm outstretched, hoping that someone would have mercy on him enough to give him a little bit extra that they had so that he might scrape together enough to support himself. Needless to say, this is a very vulnerable man. This is a man who has been humbled in the extreme. He cannot care for himself. He is at the whim of other people's generosity. It's hard for many of us to even relate to this level of vulnerability. We live in such an insulated society. You know, we panic when we don't have Wi-Fi for 15 minutes. This is real hardship. This is real despair. This man is living day by day without the resources that he needs to survive. Now, as Bartimaeus sits on the side of the road, he hears things going on. He's, he's missing one of his key senses, but he still can hear. And he knows that something is occurring and he wants to understand what this commotion is all about. And so in his utterly dependent state, he cries out for others and says, what's going on? What, what's happening? I can hear something, but I, don't, I know what's going on. Please tell me what's happening. Can you describe to me what, what's occurring right now? How frustrating it must have been to need help in almost every situation in his life. He reaches out to the strangers around him and says, please tell me what's going on. By Luke 18, the name of Jesus of Nazareth means something. And the people nearby him says, 
Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. This is a notorious man, a man that has gained notoriety. Everybody understands that there are many stories floating around about this man. Many probably don't know whether they're true or whether they're fake. We know that the Pharisees were a very influential group, were very hostile towards this Jesus, that the scribes were nervous about him. There is more and more talk and discussion about the things that Jesus is doing, many of which are things that only could be done by the power of mighty God. Those who don't know personally of him, those who have not heard him teach, those who have not seen him do miracles, have absolutely heard of the things that he has done. News of what he had accomplished had spread through Judea like wildfire. And which of those stories, which bits of news do you think were particularly interesting to a man like Bartimaeus? Don't you think that this blind beggar who had heard stories about a holy man who was traveling from village to village, teaching and healing and casting out demons, doesn't make sense that a man with incurable blindness might dream about maybe one day being able to meet this Jesus that everyone's talking about? But of course, he couldn't go to where Jesus was. He had no resources. This man is simply begging for the food he needs to get by today. He couldn't dream to journey to where Jesus was, and it wasn't as if Jesus was in one place. Jesus was traveling about. By the time you hear news of what Jesus has done up in Galilee, he's somewhere else teaching the gospel. So there was very little hope probably that this man had that Jesus might one day come to him, and yet here he hears the name Jesus of Nazareth. That is why everyone is talking. That is all this commotion that you hear. And so this news sparks an immediate reaction in this man, Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There is desperation in this plea. Bartimaeus knows that this is maybe the only chance he has of coming into contact with a man who is filled with the supernatural power of God. For years, he's been stuck. No solutions, very little resources, but a supernaturally powerful individual had come near to him, had ventured into his town, and now the one long shot that might help him is within earshot. What does Bartimaeus do? He cries out in desperation. No one else has been able to cure him. The small gifts of generosity have helped, but they're not a solution for Bartimaeus. Perhaps his solution was only a few feet away. And this man doesn't want to miss his chance to speak with this powerful man of God and seek his mercy and seek his wisdom. So there is desperation in this plea. There's also hope in this plea. Maybe he won't have to spend the rest of his life on the side of the road being a drain on society. Maybe if this Jesus who has healed others according to the word of the streets, maybe he will heal me and I won't have to be this object of everyone's pity. Just maybe he could see again. Just maybe Jesus would restore what the cruel, cold world had taken from him. Or at least perhaps this Jesus could give him some insight, could give him some reasons why, could help him to understand why he was stuck in this disability that had ruled him for so long. It wasn't necessarily about his sight. Take note, son of David, 
have mercy on me. He cries out not at first for healing, but simply for mercy. He wants this man of God to show him care and to give him something from the Lord that will encourage or strengthen him. So he doesn't ask for healing at first. He doesn't ask for his sight. He simply asks that God would be kind to him. We might conclude that the man didn't just see Jesus as a means to an end, but rather that he believed that God's will might be done through Jesus Christ. Whatever that will might be, perhaps God could clue him in onto the will that he had for his own life, for Bartimaeus. And so Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus, and we can read by the way he cries out that there is also reckless abandon in this plea. The way Bartimaeus responds makes everyone mad, and he doesn't care. Everyone is upset at him. People don't take kindly to his boldness, to the ringing of his voice, which is not apparently pleasant to them. They don't share this desperation and it appears that his focus and his determination do not move them to compassion. They're simply bothered by it. Verse 39 says, And those who were in front, meaning those who were closer to Jesus as he passed by, they rebuked him. They told him to be silent. They don't think much of this man, probably. They know who he is. This is his gate. This is where he sits. This is where he parks himself each day. And they probably see this beggar as a strain on their culture. He had no political or religious clout. A prophet was among them. Surely Jesus didn't have time to deal with the trivial needs of someone who was already on the fringe of society. So they attempt to silence him. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Regardless of what others think, Bartimaeus is determined not to miss his chance to interact with this man of miracles. So with reckless abandon, he continues to cry out. He doesn't care if everyone's angry at him. He doesn't mind if it's politically incorrect for him to be demanding to talk to this man, Jesus. When Bartimaeus had asked what the commotion was about, did you notice the title that the crowd used to describe Jesus to him? They called him Jesus of Nazareth. That's the most basic title you could use for a person. Ron of Tennessee. Brian of Michigan. Tina of Arkansas. They had fewer names than we have today. Today people are creative with names. A little too creative perhaps. We name our children after things that are confusing. We'd be, we, for the sake of uh, of uniqueness, we will spell our child's name in a way that makes absolutely no sense. But back then, there was maybe like 10 names, and everybody just kind of had the same names in the Hebrew culture. So there were many Jesuses. And so in order to understand which Jesus you're talking about, you would refer to the place they came from. So Jesus of Nazareth was the most basic way you could refer to Jesus, the Son of God. The Jesus everyone is fussing about is the one who came from that little town, Nazareth. That's not the title that Bartimaeus uses for Jesus when he cries out to him. He doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the title that Bartimaeus uses for Jesus when he cries out tells us something about Jesus. It also tells us perhaps something about Bartimaeus, about the way that he sees Jesus, about what he thinks of these stories he's heard that Jesus is one who can heal and can cast out demons, can teach the truth of God. 
the title that Bartimaeus uses to describe Jesus is in reference to the Davidic covenant that is described in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a, an important covenant in the history of Israel. And just really briefly to break it down, there are three parts to it. If you were to go back and read 2 Samuel 7 this week, you would see these all laid out. Israel will have a permanent dwelling place to call their home. That is one of the promises that God makes to David in this covenant in verses 10 through 11. And that's really interesting to me that he makes that promise to a David who is ruling over a place that the Israelites call their home already, right? Do you think perhaps God was intimating that that little strip of land in Judea was not really the great promised land that he intended to give them forever and ever, that there was something greater, that perhaps he was pointing forward to New Jerusalem, to a land that would never be defiled or overtaken or lost or found. Israel will one day have a permanent dwelling place to call their home. The second aspect of this covenant it describes the fact that Solomon, David's son, will be allowed to build God a temple. Now that is something that David wanted to do for the Lord God, Yahweh. He was, in fact, quite guilty that for years, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, had been placed in a tent, a tabernacle, a dwelling place that could be disassembled and moved from one area to another. That's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. Yet when David went home at night to lay his head down to go to sleep, he lived in a temple made of cedar. He was living in luxury while the throne of God was in a makeshift tent. And he felt convicted about this. He said, this isn't right. I want to build a temple for my God's throne so that he will have a proper place where we can come and offer him worship, where we can serve him. And yet God responded to him through the prophet Nathan and made it clear that God was not going to allow David to build that temple. Um, I can't get into all the details, but because of the fact that David was a man of war and that he had he had been engaged in violence and warfare. God decided that he wasn't the one fit to make this temple for him. But part of this promise, this covenant to David, was that his son Solomon would build this temple. And this temple would be an honor and a glory to God. Now the third aspect of this covenant, this Davidic covenant, is that a descendant of David's would have an eternal claim to the throne over Israel. The Lord God would bless David in such a way that somebody who descended from his bloodline would rule forever over the nation and the people of God, over the chosen. Let me read to you verses 13 and verse 16 from first, or 2 Samuel 7. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a lot of forevers, isn't it? God is making it very clear that, that David will be involved in the leadership by providing a, a, a seed, an, an offspring, to rule over the nations for eternity. This title, King of David, or Son of David, rather, points out again the many ways that Jesus Christ is the living fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, as we discussed last week. The Gospel of Matthew place such a great emphasis on Jesus being the son of David that it begins with a genealogy that links Christ to the second king of Israel. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In that one sentence he links Jesus to both the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of David. 
Luke's gospel records the words of the angel who visited Mary, uh, Mary Jesus' mother. And it told her that her son would be the heir to David's throne. Listen to this, verses 30 through 33 of chapter 1 of Luke. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So there's a direct reference here to this Davidic covenant that was made so many generations before. When we read of Jesus finally entering into Jerusalem the week before he was betrayed and crucified, the crowds gathered to give him the honor of a prophet or a king. And they hailed Jesus as the son of David. We call it the triumphal entry. And look at what it says in Matthew chapter 21, verses 9 through 11. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So this son of David title clearly links him to this promise which the nation of Israel was anticipating would one day be fulfilled. In calling out like this to Jesus, the son of David, blind Bartimaeus is revealing what he believes of Jesus. He knows Christ is not just a man, Christ is the man, the one that God had chosen to redeem Israel and to rule over it forever. And though the crowds see Bartimaeus as a waste of time, Jesus doesn't share that opinion. Verse 40, And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought near to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? We saw this same kind of invitation when the disciples tried to turn away the parents who sought blessings for their infants just a few short verses ago because they thought it wasn't worth Jesus' time, right? Again and again, we're seeing this pattern that those who are marginalized in society are the ones that Christ, in fact, would call to Himself. Those are the ones in humility often that could receive and understand the gospel more readily than perhaps someone who was rich or prosperous or powerful. Though the others might have been perturbed Jesus shows no sign of being upset at this man who shouted his name over the crowds and is excited for his request for mercy. And so he calls him to be near to him. By asking Bartimaeus what he needs, Jesus offers him an opportunity. An opportunity to reply with even greater faith than he already has shown. And Bartimaeus does just that. He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Again, the titles that Bartimaeus is using to address Jesus tell us more and more about the way that he views this man of God. He calls Jesus Lord. This is respectful. And though others perhaps have called Jesus Lord and not really meant much by it, it wasn't necessarily a sign of true discipleship, but from a man who considers Jesus of David's line and sees him as a fulfillment of Davidic covenant promises, then we can safely say that his use of Lord here is not just flattery, he is actually and literally believing that Jesus is a master to him. You might also note that Jesus does not treat Bartimaeus the same way that he treated a certain rich young ruler that we read about just a a few weeks ago, right? He doesn't require something 
of Bartimaeus. He doesn't say, well, listen, I'll give you this mercy that you ask for. I'll help you restore your sight. Just sell all you have and come and follow me. He doesn't ask him to complete a task or to show an, a, an allegiance to Jesus because there is something that Jesus sees in Bartimaeus that he did not see in the rich young ruler, and that is true faith in Jesus. Luke 18, verses 42 through 43, And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Your faith, as expressed in the title that he had used for Jesus, as expressed in his utter determination to get to Jesus' attention, despite the way the crowd was condemning him and trying to silence him, your faith has made you well. Now this doesn't mean that his faith created the cure that healed his eyes. He showed faith in calling out for Jesus. He showed faith in, in, in calling him the right names. But that didn't instantly cure his blindness. We sometimes get mistaken in thinking that our faith is somehow powerful apart from God. If we can just have enough faith, then we believe and God has to somehow give us the thing that we believe we will receive from him. But that's not what we see here in Scripture. What we see here is a true faith in Jesus Christ and the solution to Bartimaeus' blindness in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus still has to speak these important words. Jesus had to say that he is restored. But because there was true faith within this man, Jesus decided that blindness was no longer necessary for his life. Bartimaeus' healing and his subsequent discipleship was more glorifying to God than blindness had been. Jesus did not have to make him have sight. There are many blind people who have been a glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many disabled people who struggle through this world and who need help from others who can still glorify the Lord God, who can experience His joy, who can be an encouragement to others. So Jesus did not have to make this man have his sight back. But He decided in His wisdom that it would glorify God the most to give him what he had asked for. And so he restores this man's sight to him. Friends, we need to be careful, especially as a pastor, I need to be careful that when we study these ancient texts, we don't feel compelled to always find some hidden meaning locked away in the translations from Greek to English or from Hebrew to English or from Arabic to English in every single passage that we read. The Word of God is not just for Greek scholars, okay? The Word of God is for you. The Word of God is for you to go home and read and to study and be blessed by. But there are times that when we dig a little bit into those original languages, we might see something that the English translation doesn't make clear to us at first. And so there's one word in the Greek, it's pronounced say so came, that we translate into three English words in this text as we read it in our Bibles. And that translation is going to be the part where it says, made you well. Your faith has made you well. Say so can. It indicates that the man has been healed, that he can now see because his sight has been recovered. But the word say so can more literally means has saved you. Your faith has delivered you. The issue was much bigger than blindness. The blindness was a hindrance to be certain, but the true sickness that needed to be addressed had nothing to do with any of this man's five senses. It had everything to do with the state of the man's 
heart. He needed to be saved. He needed forgiveness for his sins. Are things that we spoke of in the beginning today, are they important? Is global warming important? Yes. Is the fact that we have a president of questionable moral character important? Yes. Is the fact that we see sickness all around us important to the Lord God? Yes. But is there something more important than all of those things? Yes. Everything I mentioned before, those are all secondary issues. This man Bartimaeus, his blindness was of secondary importance to Christ. The thing that matters most is the fact that our sinful hearts have created a division between us and God. And apart from Christ, that division cannot be mended. There is no amount of religious service you can render to God that will wash your sins away. There is no amount of effort that you can put into being a holy person that can cancel out all the wicked things that you have done and make God forget them. We just sang a new song just a few moments ago by a, a band called Ghost Ship. If you don't know their music, I encourage you to check them out. They're a very, uh, very talented band from the Northwest, and their music is all focused on glorifying Jesus Christ. And in that song that we just sang, uh, there was a, a, a line that I want us to think about for a minute. It said, The blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. The blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. And that line is made to make us consider the efforts of man to make himself holy. When you are blind, you don't need to just squint a little harder or get into a room with better light. When you are blind, there is something damaged in you that you cannot make right. And that is symbolic of the sin that exists in our hearts, friends. That there is something broken in us that we cannot make right. And it doesn't matter how much effort we put into saving ourselves or being good enough for heaven that will in no way, shape, or form ever redeem us. There is no sosekane in our efforts. Salvation only comes from the Lord God. The one who has entered into our earth has taken on flesh. This one who has the power to cure, this one who has the power to overcome our sin, he is the one we must learn to cry out to and appeal to. And in order for that to happen, we've got to see in humility our own weakness, our own desperate state. Friends, apart from Christ, we're in just as bad a place as Bartimaeus was on the side of that road. We're in a worse place because poverty can be solved by money, but spiritual depravity can only be solved by the blood of a perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ came and lived in this earth with us and walked the earth in a way that we could not walk. He came and demonstrated perfect faith in the Father God. He came and followed every rule that had been laid out in the Old Testament. He came and honored every good deed that God called His people to do to represent Him well. The Lord Jesus was perfect, flawless in every moral sense. And though He should have been exalted for that, though He should have been praised and lifted up, instead He humbled Himself before us wretched sinners that we are, and willingly gave his life on the cross at Calvary. He was willing to let that perfect example of faithfulness be scarred by the floggings that he endured, be mocked by the soldiers and by the Jewish people that so hated Jesus Christ and, and, and so slandered him. He allowed that perfection to be marred so that 
through his death, he might rise again on the third day and prove that sin had no power over him and therefore it has no power over those who belong to him. Son of David, have mercy on me. Do we cry out to our God with the same kind of desperation that this blind man did? Son of David, have mercy on my greed. I have been keeping my resources to myself. I have not used them for your glory. I've been pursuing things as if that joy that I really need is in them and not in you. Son of David, have mercy on my greed. Son of David, have mercy on my selfishness. I've been looking past everyone else's hurt and focusing on my own discomfort, my own dissatisfaction. I have not been content and instead I constantly come to you and even ask you to make my life easy and easy and easy. Please have mercy on my selfishness, Lord God. Help me to serve others. Help me to love beyond myself. Son of David, have mercy on my dishonesty. I have struggled so badly to tell the truth because I'm so afraid of what's going to come from the truth. Let me be a man of integrity. Let me be a woman who is willing to see reality for what it is. God, have mercy on my dishonesty. Son of David, have mercy on my hatred, on my heartlessness, on my immorality. Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 43, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The man's sight saved and rescued him right away. He was able to see this hindrance was lifted from him. And he reacts in two ways. He reacts by following Jesus. <clears throat> this gate that has been his place of dwelling is not his gate anymore. He's with Jesus. Wherever Jesus is going, he's going with Jesus. Whatever life he had scraped together for himself in his disabled state, it didn't matter anymore. God had given him new life. He followed. And secondly, he glorified Jesus. He praised him for the things that he had accomplished in his own life. <clears throat> he gave him credit and had a grateful heart for this transformation that Jesus brought into him. The testimony of this reaction causes the people that were there by him in the roadside to praise God. It's kind of ironic. One minute they're telling the man to shut up, to stay in the back. Jesus doesn't have time for you. Then Jesus makes time for him, saves him, and then suddenly the same crowd is praising God. Yay, look what God has done. Amazing, right? Friends, there is a difference in the praise that the blind man Bartimaeus, who can now see, gives to the Lord God and the praise that this crowd on the side of the road gives to God for the work that Jesus just did. Pause for just a minute and think about this. The blind man, the man who had nothing, had faith in Jesus. What kind of faith? Not just faith that, faith that believes he's real. Not just faith that thinks he can do great things, but faith that follows him. Faith that cries out to Jesus in desperation and then responds with gratitude. Faith that knows that Jesus is more than just Jesus of Nazareth. Faith that knows that Jesus is the Son of David, that He is in fact Lord over His life, the King of kings, the authority over all authorities. He has faith in Jesus and that faith causes Him to leave all that He knew to follow after the Lord. The crowds, on the other hand, they see the miraculous power that Jesus displayed 
And they praise God because they know only God could give this man his sight back. They praise God, but that's where it stops. That is the end of it. Wow, God did something amazing. I'm glad I saw that. I'm going to have something interesting to tell everybody about my day today. And then back to life as usual. Only the man who had nothing realized that everything he needed was in Jesus. He put his faith in Christ and he followed him. Friends, we cannot be content to be spiritual tourists who simply want to see a miraculous work of the Lord God but don't want to respond to it in any way, shape, or form. God did not just come here to impress you. God did not just come here to show you His power and then leave. He came here to give His life to change yours forever. And that only happens with a kind of faith that is willing to say, here I am, Lord. Take me wherever you want me to go. Change me. Use this life for something good. There are spiritual tourists who have been in a church every Sunday of their lives who watch the Lord God work in others and say, wow, look what God can do. They've seen Him provide for needs and answer prayers. But when it comes to their own life, they are far from actually following Him. We cannot afford, my friends, to become spiritual tourists when in reality what we need is the humility to see ourselves as the blind on the side of the road who without Christ will never receive sight again. Robert H. Stein says, The irony of ironies is that the blind now see and the unrighteous become righteous, whereas the seeing have become blind and the righteous have become unrighteous because boasting of their own self-righteousness, they will not accept the only real righteousness, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Please bow your heads and pray with me as we conclude. Father God, you are a merciful God, and so we cry out to you today to have the kind of mercy on us that you had on Bartimaeus. Lord God, more important than our physical condition, more important than these secondary issues that so often dominate our thought life, that so often become our focus, we need to see our need for the primary issue to be resolved. We need to understand how important it is, Lord God, that you work a new work in our hearts and transform us from the inside out. Lord God, if that happens, we will not be able to stay what we were before. Lord God, when we choose to follow after you, Lord God, when we respond in faith to the gospel message that's been preached today, we will be changed by that gospel. You are effective in that. It will not fall short in us. And so, Lord God, if there are those who for years have watched and have been observant of the things that you do and have even glorified God for what you have done but have not turned that focus in on themselves and realized their own need for salvation, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray, Lord God, that we would not leave this place without recognizing the weight and the depth of our own sin. Lord, that we would realize how serious it is because it cuts us off and away from you, Lord God. Father, if we are believers who have been changed as Bartimaeus was changed and yet we are allowing sin to dwell in our lives and to linger, let us see the foolishness of that today, Lord God. Help us to see how blessed we truly are to be yours. 
Give us a desire for the things of righteousness, Lord God, and help us to reject the things of wickedness. Father, this world around us needs a lot of help. And Lord God, we will pray uh, to you from time to time to ease the burden of our sicknesses and and to work within our government to bless our president and our senators and, and our congressmen, Lord God. We will ask that you will bring new jobs to our congregation, that you will fix our financial woes. But Father, help us to remember that even if those things are not met the way we desire them to be met, that if we have Christ, we have all that we need. You are a magnificent God. We pray that you be glorified, not just here on this Sunday in this building, but in our lives every day that we walk as a testimony to you. And we lift this all up to Jesus Christ in his name. Amen.